0: Hi folks, this is Bill Owen, the retired ABC announcer, and uh, I've got an idea today for a podcast. I've done podcasts on various topics previously, sports and old-time radio, comedians, various topics. But uh, today we're going to talk about celebrities I've met and my impressions of them. I'm sure everybody's met some celebrities along the way. I've had the good fortune of meeting dozens of them. and it was unlikely because here's a young boy grew up in the obscure state of North Dakota a very happy childhood. But you know not a lot of things happened out there that would be exciting to people who grew up in metropolitan areas. Uh, for example, uh, the two towns I grew up in, Grand Forks and Bismarck, they were they're pretty good sized cities today, but back then they were small towns. Grand Forks was around 20,000, Bismarck was about 14,000, so there was no reason for a lot of celebrities to come up there. I guess some came up for pheasant hunting and things like that, but they'd slip in and out of town without doing any publicity or interviews. The only two people I remember all the years I lived in Bismarck of note were Jack Dempsey, he, the great boxer, he came up to a referee a wrestling match, and that was exciting, I had to go down and get his autograph. And Ted Weems, uh, a lot of you people have never heard of Ted Weems, but he was one of the prominent band leaders, probably one of the top 20 or so back in the golden age of big bands. And uh, Perry Como was his vocalist for some time. Ted Weems' most uh, famous hit was Heartaches, da um da dum, Heartaches, with Elmo Tanner, the uh, the whistler. So uh, other than Ted Weems and Jack Dempsey, uh, celebrities uh, were uh, a no-show at Bismarck and Grand Forks. But as things developed over the decades, I became an announcer at ABC in New York and had occasion to meet literally dozens of celebrities, sometimes for interviews or for other reasons. Uh, One that comes to mind, for example, is Margaret Whiting. She was such a great singer, daughter of Richard Whiting, a famous composer, and uh, I was working at a radio station in the New York area and met her, and uh, we performed together at dances and so on. I used to buy her records when I was a teenager, so I was, it was quite a thrill to be a, a colleague, of, uh, so to speak, of Margaret Whiting. And she told an interesting story one time. We were visiting at Kitty Callan. Kitty Callan, the vocalist, Little Things Mean a Lot. We were at her home. And Margaret Whiting was one of the guests there, and we sat in the backyard, and she reminisced. And she told how she grew up being the daughter of Richard Whiting, that she thought every kid in America had famous people coming over to their house, because every Saturday, practically, she said there'd be somebody famous coming over for various reasons. And uh, one Saturday, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, of all people, were there. They had made many previous appearances. And they were like playmates in a sense. They were also very young. And uh, Johnny Mercer happened to come along. He was Uncle Johnny, the great composer from Savannah, Georgia. And again, she thought everybody knew famous composers. So Uncle Johnny, Johnny Mercer, showed up and he said, Folks, I've got what I think might be a good song I just came up with. He, He wrote literally dozens of hit songs. And it was called Blues in the Night. And so he gave the sheet music to Mickey Rooney, who sat down at the keyboard and started playing it. And he says, yeah, sounds pretty good. And uh, Judy Garland was going to try to attempt the vocals. And they went through the song, and they found it hey, it sounds great, but there's something wrong, Johnny said. I don't know what it is. And somebody in the group suggested that they move one of the uh, paragraphs of the lyrics up to the beginning, And that was buried somewhere in the middle. My mama done told me when I was in knee pants. And they said, that's it. That's a good starting point. Don't have it in the middle. So that famous song starts out, my mama done told me when I was in knee pants. Or if a girl vocalist was singing it, "My, my mama done told me when I was in pigtails. So there's the story behind Blues in the Night and the story behind my knowing Margaret Whiting another Margaret comes to mind. I'm just going through uh, off the top of my head people I remember meeting for various reasons. Margaret Truman. I had just completed a, a book with Frank Buxton, the big broadcast, and we were doing a book tour. And I was in New York City and she was at W.O.R. Radio and we arranged to have an interview and uh, arrived at the studios. and Here comes Margaret Truman in and I was there long before she was, and we started to wonder if she's going to be late for her own show. But she came in and almost out of breath. And she seemed like the most ordinary, wonderful American woman, not a celebrity of any sorts, nothing snobbish about her at all. And it was, like, oh dear, I've just been shopping and I'm running a little bit late, so I'm sorry. <laughs> you felt like you'd known her all your life, just she could have been the next door neighbor, but here. She was the world-famous Margaret Truman. I remember the, the critic for uh, one of the Washington papers. I think it was David Hume that criticized her operatic career. And uh, Truman was then pre- uh, Harry Truman, who was then president, said, I'm going to punch him in the nose. People said, that's not very dignified for a president to say. But a lot of old-timers will remember that. Margaret Truman. Oh, Robert Merrill. Robert Merrill, the great, uh, metropolitan opera singer. I was at Terrytown, New York at a soccer game. My son was going to school there, private school. And I wanted to watch his soccer game. There were only, oh, three or four people, parents along the sidelines. It was the middle of the day and most people were at work. And I started talking with this gentleman and, uh, various things. And he was talking about his golf game and the And I'd been talking to him for maybe five or ten minutes when something told me, wait a minute, wait a minute, that voice is familiar. And I said, are you Robert Merrill? (laughs) Yes, I am. But then he went back to his golf game. So, a very, very modest gentleman. And for years and years, of course, he sang at the start of every Yankee baseball game, national anthem, Robert Merrill. Oh, what other memories come? Oh, Ewell Gibbons. Remember, for a brief time, he was very famous in America. He appeared on Johnny Carson a few times. He was famous for uh, being able to make a meal out of just wild plants. He said he could have a dinner on the streets of New York just from the things that grew up in the cracks of the sidewalk. And he wasn't exaggerating. Ewell Gibbons. What was it? Stalking the Wild Asparagus. That was his famous book. Well, Virginia Gibson, who was my co-host on the Discovery Series, we did a show at Yule Gibbons' home out in Pennsylvania, and we flew out there one day and spent the day and filmed him showing us uh, which plants to touch and which ones not to. And I remember him saying, uh, now Ginny, you and Bill have probably had a a poisonous plant in the last few hours that you've eaten. A tomato plant, which, which can be dangerous. It, it has some things in it, but of course the way it's cultivated, it, it's not of no danger whatsoever to us. But it has the potential. He told us all about that. Can't recall all the details. But what I do remember is uh, we were walking through the house there one time, and his wife was sitting there doing something, lovely lady, And uh, I made a comment to her, introduced myself, and so on. And I looked up, and by the wall switch, there was a, a little handwritten note. It looked like a list of chores. So I said, Ewell, what is that? He just smiled and shrugged his shoulders and said, don't worry about that list. I'll never get to it. Ewell Gibbons. Well, one of the great honors also was to be a colleague of Milton Cross, the voice of the Metropolitan Opera for years and years. Uh, I remember in, in grade school, I was, I was quite a fan of opera in those days. And I remember my ninth grade teacher, Rita Murphy, she used to talk about the enunciation of Milton Cross, how he could handle all those foreign names in the opera. And she would have been so pleased to know that someday I would actually be his colleague one of the first times I went in a studio to take his place after he'd done his shift in the booth, just giving station breaks and so on in New York. And uh, I said, I'm here, Mr. Cross. He said, Bill, you, you can call me Milton. And, you know, and I said, yes, sir, Mr. Cross. <laughs> it just wouldn't come out. He, he was elevated, as far as I was concerned, on a pedestal. Milton Cross, what an honor. What a great, great gentleman. Another Milton, Milton Kniff. I got to meet him in a very unusual way. We were in the midst of writing the big broadcast, and I wanted some information on the radio program that I used to listen to called Terry and the Pirates. And uh, I found that he was living not far from me in Rockland County, New York at that time. So I boldly went up and knocked on his door. <laughs> Doesn't seem like the right thing to do, does it? Knocked on his door. He came to the door, and he was in the middle of doing his uh, Steve Canyon comic strip, which he took over after, after, uh, well, he left the Chicago Tribune's Terry and the Pirates because they did not did not want to cut him in on on the action. They made so much money on the side with the with the characters the licensing and so on, and uh, they just kept him on salary. So he left Terry and the Pirates and uh, went to Steve Canyon, which became just as big or bigger. And he told me how he would go to conventions as he was a young fellow. And at the convention would be people like Chester Gould, who created Dick Tracy, and Harold Gray, who created Little Orphan Andy. And he said it was it was amazing, Bill. He said that they accepted me, this young guy, as one of their own. I guess it was it was akin to the way I felt among the announcers at ABC. I was so thrilled to be working with people I listened to as a child, and it's similar with the uh, with the great Milton Caniff, and he was a revered cartoonist. What a wonderful wonderful man! And in the uh, in his room, in his studio, where he was working. He had uh, life-size figures of some of his characters from Terry and the Pirates, like Patrick Ryan and Connie and Big Stoop. If you read the strip, you know who I'm talking about, the dragon lady. So, uh, But at th- that time, he was working with Steve Canyon, and he had reached the point where he no longer did the lettering himself for the strips. He drew, uh, he wrote the, wrote the story, and then when it came to... Uh, for example, he wanted to have a, uh, a city bus in the street. He would just draw a little rectangle and write bus, and he would have another cartoonist come in and do the actual drawing. But he had uh, he'd served his time, and one of the most successful of all the comic strip cartoonists. Terry and the Pirates became a, a popular uh, comic book series. Uh, they made a, uh, a motion picture serial of Terry and the Pirates, and now I I had just mentioned uh, Harold Gray of Little Orphan Annie. I never met him. A lot of people missed the point of Little Orphan Annie. They didn't realize it was basically a political strip. Harold Gray was a great believer in capitalism, and uh, I think he wearied of capitalism being uh, criticized so much, so his hero, Daddy Warbucks, was a multi-millionaire, but he was a good, kind, giving person. And he was the hero of the strip, along with the title character Annie. And uh, oh, one more thing about Milton Caniff—he told me that he, uh, he had characters. He had one called April, a young girl, and and he he would get letters from fans of his strip saying we named our daughter april because of your april and then he would a few years later he'd get an announcement that april had gotten engaged and married and, and had a child and he would get all these personal notes from people all because they named their characters after some of his one of the great the uh, popular vocalists of the era was jerry vale Went to high school in the New York area, had such hit songs as "Have You Looked Into Your Heart," and "Voleri," a great Jerry Vale. I, I got to know him, through uh, him coming to our radio station, and being interviewed a couple of times, and very very friendly man, a wonderful guy. I remember telling him that, uh, I had heard a, disc jock in the air one time saying. If I could sing, I would want to sing like Jerry Vale. He was he was kind of got a kick out of being flattered that way when I told Jerry Vale in person. Jerry Vale told me something really interesting in the midst of an interview where we cut away for commercials. Uh, we just chatted waiting for that 2 minutes to elapse and he said uh, we started talking about the O.J. Simpson case and he said that he was out with Rodney Dangerfield and O.J. Simpson, that trio, the night before the murder. And I said, wow, what was it like? He said, O.J. was very relaxed that night. You'd have, you'd have no idea that anything was bothering him. I said, did you talk to the police about this? And uh, Jerry, no, <laughs> I didn't want to get myself involved in that. He said, I, I didn't want to add my name to the list of people I interviewed. I thought that was that was interesting. I, I could have broken the news, but of course I I didn't want to betray him. I never said anything publicly at that time about it. Oh, the race car driver from South Carolina, Cale Yarborough, one of the heroes of the Darlington Speedway. And uh, I never followed or even though I was a sportscaster, I didn't follow auto racing particularly closely, but everybody knew who Cale Yarborough was. One time I was at ABC and I was doing my regular shift, and one of the editors came in and said, Bill, we need you to interview Cale Yarborough because he's here for an interview and the regular sportscaster is gone. Could you do that? I said, sure, you know. So we did a nice little interview, and he was very excited because uh, – it turned out to be his daughter was about to be born, so he was he was on tenderhooks, just sitting there waiting for for the report from South Carolina. Well, now a few years pass, and it turned out that that girl was uh, married the son of my wife's best childhood friend. What are the chances of that happening? And we were just talking about it one time. I said, is that true that Cale Yarborough married into your family? Yeah, yeah. So I told him the story of how I had met Cale Yarborough and, and that very girl who was being born that night. One more here I want to remind you, and then we'll do some more of these, some more podcasts. I've, I've got a lot of names that that come to the top. Roger Maris, And uh, I met him at Yankee Stadium. I was, I was playing in a... Uh, exhibition game i was actually a reasonably good baseball player as a youngster myself played in a couple of state tournament games in fact roger maris was on the opposing team fargo beat us we were i was playing for bismarck fargo beat us two years in a row for the state championship they were kind of our nemesis and uh anyway roger maris is up and coming he i don't think he was even a starter when I first played against him, he was just on the team. But of course, he zoomed to the top and became a major league star and broke first to break Babe Ruth's record. We all know that, 61 home runs, 61 in 61. That's how I remember how many he hit and what year it was. Somebody said, uh, if you ever meet Roger Mayer, he's kind of uh, snobbish and he's kind of hard to get along with. Well... He was getting dressed for the regular game as I was in the dressing room after the exhibition game. And uh, he was a charming gentleman in every possible way. And he was a fellow North Dakotan. Not many people got famous that came out of North Dakota. I didn't know that he lived in my first hometown of Grand Forks. And he talked about the, he went to Washington School and I went to Wilder. We reminisced about all that, and then he told me that uh, uh, he's actually born in Hibbing, but he says, I always tell people Fargo because I want I was just an infant in Hibbing, and I wanted Fargo to get the credit. So a lot of people, they'll see it where he's born was Fargo. It actually was Hibbing, Minnesota. But anyway, he told me, uh, uh, I, well, I, I mentioned it first. I said, didn't you used to spell your name differently? I used to see his name in the paper. For, he was an excellent football player in high school. played for Sacred Heart Parochial School in Fargo. And it was always M-A-R-A-S. And he said, yeah, I'm, that's our family name. And it's pronounced Maris, but he said, I got so tired of people mispronouncing it, Maras, that I changed the spelling on my own. So the rest of the family, it was all, always spelled M-A-R-A-S. He had a brother, Rudy, who was just as good an athlete, But uh, he developed some terrible muscular disease and he was uh, unable to continue in sports. And he always played for his brother Rudy, Rudy and Roger Maris. Oh, I'm thinking of so many other people that come to mind. Ed Sullivan, Howard Cosell, Frankie Lane, uh, Les Paul, Sid Sharice, Tony Martin, Red Skelton, Paul Harvey, Larry King, Nelson Rockefeller, vice president. We'll be talking about them in future podcasts, but I'm going to rest your ears for right now. I hope you enjoyed, just as Bill Owen reminisces off the top of his head, famous celebrities I've met. See you again later. Bye.